turn as well in our Bibles, first, uh, finally, thirdly, to uh, the book of Acts, our sermon text this morning, the book of Acts, chapter number 17. We're picking up at verse number 16 in our reading this morning. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter, verse number 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, we saw that last Sunday, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler or dabbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, foreign gods, because he was preaching Jesus, that's one of the divinities they thought he was preaching, and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by by, by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For... In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And to all these words, God's people say, Amen. Amen. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, we've seen they were led by the Lord, and they had been preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, 
and in Berea, and some of the leadership of the synagogue had uh, gathered together a crowd and ran them out of town. They chased them uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of miles from Thessalonica to Berea, and then they, uh, they hid away the apostle and they sent him off to Athens, and he was waiting there in Athens, is where we pick up this morning. But I want to remind you, as we read in the story of Acts, and we see uh, the apostle and those along with the apostles uh, traveling, say chapter 17, if you go back there, verse number 1, they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and then we saw as well last Sunday they came to Berea, and now uh, here is St. Paul, or Paul the Apostle, he is in Athens. Don't forget this. Back in chapter 13, and I've been pointing this verse out time and time again, not to forget this, because this was not just a one-time occurrence, but back in chapter 13 at verse number 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4, if you turn back there quickly, uh, this is sort of a, 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 a key verse that guides us throughout what we might just consider a very basic travelogue. You know, this is the Rick Steves version of ancient church history. We might just read it as a bunch of lists of names. And yeah, there were some interesting things going on in those places. And, you know, who are the guides that you want to spend your money with? And, you know, what's the best food to get in Thessalonica and so forth? But don't forget what's going on here. Back in chapter 13 at verse number 3, after fasting and praying, they, the church in Antioch, laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off. Don't forget that. The church sent them off. We saw that many, many weeks ago. But then in verse 4, notice as well, this is also true. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned back then, and I've been mentioning uh, week in, week out, this principle that all of the apostle and those along with him who are traveling from place to place, preaching the word, performing miracles, seeing those saved, seeing great opposition... All of this is the work of the Holy Spirit. All of this leading and guiding from this place to that place is the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in a, in a very striking way in chapter 16 at verse 6 down through verse number 10, where Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy, they wanted to go and travel along the southern coastal region of what is today Turkey, but yet the Holy Spirit said no. So they went north and they began to travel. Then as they got to the, to the very top or close to the top of what is today Turkey, they wanted to make a right-hand turn and go clockwise back home. What did the Holy Spirit say? No. And they were guided somehow, some way to Troas, ancient Troy. And they then made their way because Paul saw in a dream a man of Macedonia saying to him, come over and help. And they journey over and they come into what is Europe. They come into Macedonia and now into Greece. Every single twist and turn, all the plot points throughout the story are the power and the work and the guiding and the directing of the Holy Spirit. And, and we've wanted to say as well that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, still need to believe this. That our lives, we'll come back to this a little bit, but our lives, every twist and turn, all the ups and downs, the good, the bad, and the ugly... All of it is due to the almighty, omnipotent hand of our great God. And in Acts, especially, it's the power of the Holy Spirit who's guiding and 
directing. We've got to see not just the apostles' life was directed by the Holy Spirit, but ours too. Ours too. So, I want you to see here in this story of Paul here in Athens, a very famous story if you, if you know the New Testament fairly well, you know that Paul here speaks to this great philosophical society as it's sometimes been described. But I want you to see there uh, the, the Holy Spirit still leading him. And there are various opportunities in which he's led to share and preach and reason and debate the gospel. And then also I want you to see his speech that he gives that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, we saw from time to time, we, we read that when Paul was sent, or when the apostle Peter went there, that we, we read that little phrase that filled with the Spirit, he or they opened their mouths. And it's not just when they were led and where they were led to, but also what they said, and how they said it, and how they were prepared to say it. This, again, is the Spirit of God who's filled the apostle in this case, to speak. And then we'll come to the end there. Uh, if you have your sermon, note, sermon notes page out, you'll see there will come to the end some, uh, some application for us from this story. So notice, first of all, some spirit-led opportunities. Uh, Paul is waiting. Paul's waiting. Uh, he's waiting for Godot, if you know that story, right? He's waiting. He's hanging out, waiting for his friends, his co-workers, Silas, whom he took with him from, from Antioch and Timothy, whom they grabbed hold of uh, in Derby and took alongside with them. He's waiting now because of the persecution. And the Spirit, note, or his Spirit, yeah, is provoked, no doubt because of the Holy Spirit, provoked within him. Provoked within him. Uh, we can sometimes over-Americanize uh, or over-Gentileize the Apostle Paul and forget that he's a Jewish rabbi. This language of being provoked as a Jewish rabbi in a, in a city filled with gods, filled with idols, filled with statues, no doubt provoked his soul, his heart. One ancient writer said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a human being. That's how many divine, divine statues and temples and rituals and rites there were. And so, Paul, we, we, we're, not, we're, we're, we're so desensitized from idolatry uh, today. But Paul, as a Jewish rabbi, is provoked. His soul is provoked. Why? What did the law of God say? What did the Ten Commandments say about God? We didn't read them this morning, but we, we typically read them on Sunday morning. But what, what, did the, what did the commandments say about God? No other gods before me. No other gods before me. And that's one of the reasons why, as historic Protestants, we have no images of God. And we typically don't even have images of Jesus. I know that's going to offend some, but as a historic Protestant pastor, I'm committed to that position. Uh, That's our historic tradition. We have no images uh, this is why uh, in the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholics and even the Lutherans, our, our fellow Protestants, uh, they called us as Reformed Protestants, uh, they called us Mohammedans, they called us followers of Mohammed because we follow that ancient tradition from the Old Testament, from the ancient Near East of having no images 
of God. And so here's Paul, who's one as well committed to the law of God, uh, just as we are, having no images of God. And his spirit is provoked, provoked. That, that, that verb that's used there, his spirit being provoked, it's used in the, the Septuagint. That's the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And this is a verb that's used of God, the Holy One of Israel, that he was jealous for his own name. He was jealous for his own name. He would not give his glory to another. And so God, at times, describes himself, in human terms, being provoked by the idolatries of Israel. Read from Ezekiel chapter 18. That's one example. All the idolatries, the high places, the mountains, provoke the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And here's Saul, or here's Paul, who as well is provoked. And so he's there, as was his custom. Notice his opportunities are to reason in the synagogue with the Jews uh, and the devout people, those uh, Gentiles who were attracted to or even who converted to the God of Israel, either by circumcision. Uh, there are also various uh, rituals and so forth. But uh, he reasoned there, as was his custom. Uh, so he goes to a place that he was, we might say, comfortable with, a place that he knew very well. He knew the traditions. He knew uh, the way things worked. He knew the scriptures. We saw it last Sunday. He's a reason from the scriptures with the, the Jews in Thessalonica, his fellow Jews in Berea, as was his custom. But then notice as well, the Spirit leads him to other opportunities to reason in the marketplace, the agora, the, the place of selling and trading every day with those who happened to be there. Verse 17, amongst those, uh, amongst those some, uh, those people there were some Epicurean philosophers and some Stoic philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans were a, a school of ancient Greek philosophy that said that the gods of the Greeks, the gods that exist have no interest in us down here on earth. They are so transcendent, so different, so separated from us. They have no interest in us. And so, they lived, so the Epicureans had a very materialistic worldview, a very materialistic worldview. And they believed that human history had no beginning and it had no end. It was an, an eternal cycle. I just read an article that uh, scientists believe they've, they've uh, you know, cracked the mysteries of the universe. And, they, they, and, and some are saying that, uh, just like ancient Greek philosophers, it's interesting how things always go back in time, but uh, they're saying that uh, the universe is going to uh, continue as it is. It's going to then, of course, uh, as they say, shrink back into that little, that little uh, circle of mass and that singularity, and it's then going to Big Bang again. It has no beginning, it has no end. It's always been this way. That's an Epicurean philosophical idea, that the, that the world has no beginning and it has no end. It has no goal, it has no purpose, therefore. The goal of life, then, for an Epicurean was pleasure. Uh, pleasure didn't mean exactly what we mean by pleasure. It meant to be tranquil, it meant to be freed from pain and so forth, but Typically, we think of Epicureans as those who love life because they're materialistic. The gods have no concern with them. There, there, there is no morality between humans and God. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, believe that, yes, there are many gods, but there was one supreme God. There was one supreme God, and he is called the Logos, the Logos, and he's that God that permeates and fills all things. And so, 
the Epicureans said God was so transcendent he had nothing to do with us. The Stoics said that God is in everything. God is imminent. He's in everything. God's in, the, in, in this wood. God's in this metal. God's in the sound of my voice. God's in, the, in, in your hair. God's in your food. God's in your water. God's everywhere. This, this logos, this principle of life that permeates and fills everything. And in contrast to the Epicureans who said that the world had the beginning, the Stoics said, no, we all as human beings come from one, purpose, uh, from one person, from one single origin. And the goal of life was to live in harmony, therefore, with nature, because the Logos, God, is in everything, and we are all connected as human beings, uh, the brotherhood of man and so forth, we might say. And so we must live in harmony with, our na- with, with the nature around us, depending upon our reason. So Paul's reasoning with these people, these philosophers. Now some say, well, what is this babbler wishing to say? This babbler or this dabbler, what does it mean? Well, it means that he's an ignorant show-off, as they're describing him. He's an ignorant show-off. Why? Because to call him this, this Greek word, it means a seed picker. He was not a trained professional philosopher as these Athenians were, Stoics and Epicureans. No, this is a, a Jewish rabbi who's just picked up little bits and pieces of our philosophy and he's not pretending to, to put a show on verbally in front of, in front of the agora here, the marketplace. So they call him a, a seed picker, an ignorant person, a dabbler in philosophy, uh, a babbler who's going on. And others say, no, he seems to be preaching foreign divinities, other gods, this God called Jesus, this God called resurrection. So there's mocking of Paul. There's misunderstanding of Paul. That never happens to us, does it, when we talk to people about Jesus, right? People never mock us for our beliefs, do they? They never misunderstand what we are saying. We, we need to speak clearly to our neighbors about Jesus, but recognize that there are going to be times where you are speaking so clear about the law and the gospel, the bad news and the good news, what God requires of us, what God gives to us in Jesus Christ, that even the clearest speech to the smartest person might lead to mocking or misunderstanding. Nevertheless, we are always to be ready to give an answer, a defense, to anyone who would ask us a reason for our hope with gentleness and with self-control. And so here is Paul, spirit-led opportunities in the synagogue that he knew so well, spirit-led opportunities in the agora, the marketplace of the Athenians, a place that he wasn't so familiar with, but yet there he is interacting, discussing, reasoning, talking, taking the mocking, taking the misunderstanding, still seeking to bear witness to Jesus Christ. In other words, again, just to to bring these things all home, whether in good or bad, whether in successful missionary endeavors, whether in quote-unquote unsuccessful missionary endeavors, successes or failures, whether it's in a place that he felt comfortable or a place that he maybe wasn't so comfortable, and the same with us. Whether God leads us into a place that doesn't seem to be the right place. Or it seems to be so clear to us that this is where God wants us to be. As Acts 13 said, and as Acts has been saying, and now again we come to Acts 17, and it says once again, we have to view every opportunity 
where the Lord leads us daily as a spirit-led opportunity to serve Jesus Christ. Amen? We have to view it that way. The Spirit sent Paul and Barnabas. The Spirit sends Paul here through persecution down to Athens. And it doesn't go as well as we might want it to go and hope it would have went. It's the same thing with us. The Spirit is leading us and he's guiding us to bear witness to Jesus and to his resurrection and to, we'll see, his coming judgment. That leads to our second point here this morning. Oh, uh, let me just mention quickly, verse number 19. Notice what it says there. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This was the, the Athenian tribunal. In ancient days, when the Athenians were themselves a city-state, uh, and be, before the Romans took over, uh, and before Alexander the Great even uh, codified and solidified uh, Greece as an empire, the Greek empire, Athens had its own place of rule, and that place was up on this mountain or up on this hill. Uh, and in the times of the Romans, though, this is the time in which Paul is living, the Romans controlled, and so all things flowed from Rome. The Athenians and their Areopagus was sort of a hollow shell of its former self. But they still would bring people there to debate. Now, I take this when it says that he was taken, or he, they, they took him, uh, to be seized or to be dragged there. Some commentators say, well, this just means that they brought him to the Areopagus to speak and to philosophize. I, I take the minority position that this is him being dragged there uh, for an unofficial sort of trial. They, they can't put him to death. That's why the Jews, of course, needed Pontius Pilate to condemn Jesus. Uh, that's why Paul, as he appeals to the fact that he's a Roman citizen, I can't even be beaten without a trial. Right? We saw that in the, the previous chapters. It's so important for us. Uh, so here, here's Paul. He's being, I believe, he's being dragged or seized and brought before this tribunal because just like Socrates in ancient Athens, they were saying of Paul that he was bringing foreign gods. And that's why Socrates was put to death. He had to drink a, a poisonous potion because he brought in foreign gods and was corrupting the youth of Athens. I think that's what's going on here. They're, they're still living off their laurels. They're still sort of living off their ancient, uh, their, 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 their ancient uh, power and traditions. And they're dragging him there because he's proclaiming these supposed new divinities, Jesus and resurrection. So he sees, he's dragged there, and he has to make his defense, and that's what he does. Secondly, notice his spirit-filled speech. Verses 22 to 31. He's there. Notice he's waiting for his friends. And now he's standing, uh, not waiting for friends, but he's now standing in front of this Areopagus. And he addresses them by saying, I perceive that in every single way you are very religious. It's sort of a double entendre. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a way of saying two things at once. It can mean two things. It can mean religious. It can mean superstitious. He can be praising them. You're very religious. He can be also shaming them. Sort of like Jesus saying that you must be born from above. Right? We take that it's to be born again, to be born from above. Well, which one is it? Yes, that's the answer. It's both. To be born again is to be born from above and vice versa. And here he's saying that they're very religious, i.e. they're very, very superstitious. Why does he say that? Why does he say that? They're very religious. Are all people religious? Are all people superstitious? 
Every single human being can be described this way. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Paul later on writes this to, to the, the church in Rome. But I want you to see something where he's now appealing to their innate sense of God, their innate knowledge of God. In other words, that all human beings know God, but not all human beings know God, right? Everyone knows God, but not everybody knows him in a saving way, in a personal way. And Paul says that in Romans 1, where he explains in much more detail, saying that in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. How? His invisible, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The Psalter says, the psalmist says in Psalm number 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. There is no place where his voice is not heard. Everyone hears, hears the voice of God when they look up and they look at the creation. Most suppress that because they know it's true. They suppress it. They suppress that truth. Notice that he says that these things have been clearly portrayed in things that, that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, notice this, he's speaking here of the, of the unbelieving world, the Gentile world, the, the pagan world. Although they knew God, notice he's not speaking there of a saving knowledge of really knowing God. They, they knew God. They, they know the gods exist. All right? they, they, they spoke of the gods uh, existing like the Athenians. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then he goes on to say how that's true, especially in idolatry. In idolatry. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things, etc., etc. Everyone believes. Everyone knows that there is a God. The fact that all societies in the face of the planet from the beginning of time, even including our own, have had laws, have had a sense of right and wrong. Where do you think that all comes from? It's not a social construct, as they want you to believe today. It's not a social construct. Right and wrong, justice and rightness, these things, and religiosity, these things are inherent. These things are in our DNA as human beings. We might suppress that stuff, but yet it's there. It's there. And so he says, you're very religious. And he demonstrates that by saying that I found an altar as I was walking around seeing all these altars, all these uh, idols, all these statues, all these places of worship, all these temples. I also found this one that, was, that seemed so interesting, so intriguing, that they were so religious that they didn't want to even miss one to an unknown God, just in case they, they forgot. Again, another writer said, Pliny, an ancient Roman writer, said there were 3,000 statues in Athens in the, year, in the first century, the time in which the apostle lived. There were 3,000 statues of different gods, just in case they missed one, just in case they hadn't appropriated one from Alexander's travels all the way to Afghanistan, all the way into India, in case they didn't bring a god back with them, in case the Romans, as they conquered the Gauls and so forth, in case they forgot a god or a divinity, we have one set up just in case we missed one to an unknown god. 
Well, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, he says. What you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Now, Paul, Paul is a Jewish rabbi. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema, that's the basic confession of the Jews, the ancient people of God, the Israelites. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is Paul saying there in verse 23, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you? Is he saying that those other 2,999 gods and that one unknown God, that he is going to give them a name so that they can place that unknown statue over here in the column of the 3,000? Is Paul saying that these other gods exist? Are they legit? No. He tells the Corinthians, for example, that you can eat the food sacrificed to idols because we know the idols don't even exist. Not even there. They're fake. They're superstitious. They're turning the glory of the immortal God into the glory of man things made with hands. So he's not saying here that, that our God is just one God amongst many. Right? Live your truth, they say to us today. You know, be authentic. Be true to yourself. You know, if it works for you, it's, that's, that's cool and everything, but it doesn't really work for me. You know, you got to speak your truth. I even heard Sadie say that this week. You know, he's just telling his truth. Well, you know, we all pick up that stuff, don't we? That's how the world speaks. We all pick up these little phrases, these little lines, but they have meaning behind them. They have meaning behind them. There's no such thing as, you know, speak your truth because it's different than the, the, the truth. There's no, you know, well, your God is good for you because that's, that's what works. And, you know, but my God or my non-God is, is what I worship and serve because he or she or it or whatever it is, it works. No, there, there is no other God. He's saying that in all their superstition, in all their ignorance, in all their suppression, in all their idolatry, there is a real God, a true God. I'm going to tell you who he is. I'm going to tell you who he is. We go to the beach, of course, and we see our, our friends, and we, uh, maybe we ourselves do it ourselves. We stand out on the, on the sand, and we look out, and what do we do? Pray for surf. <laughs> Pray for surf. We walk around. I mean, oceans, I mean, George and Paula, you guys, and, and the White House, you guys know, and Miranda, you guys know better than I do. You guys have been here forever. But uh, as, as for as long as I have been here, uh, you know, downtown Oceanside was a bunch of uh, lone sharks and, uh, and a bunch of used cars lot, uh, car lots. What do we see now? I mean, what, what, is, what does our little subculture here value? Up and down, we got the ocean, yes. And then up and down Coast Highway, what's being built? Like every building now is no longer a car lot. What is it now? Let's, get, let's, let's eat food and let's get wasted, right? Like, we don't create anything. We don't build anything anymore. We don't invent anything anymore. No, we just consume. You know, let's, let's eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we surf, right? Tomorrow we surf. The architecture of our culture shows its religiosity. Uh, our huge stadiums, the centrality of, say, banks, right? The, the downtown food scene. This, this all just illustrates for us uh, the, the fact that we all have a religion. There's something that matters to us, things that we value. 
the daily grind, as we call it, uh, getting up and, and working. There's a certain rhythm to it. We might call it a liturgy of life. And whatever a person is serving, that's what their life is going to follow, that liturgy, that pattern. In fact, the apostle says, to whatever or to whomever you present yourself as an obedient slave, you are that thing slave. That's an idol. That's a god. Whether it's the waves or whether it's food or drink or whether it's a, a prestige, whether it's an ideal of what we might think of ourselves, that's a god. That's divine for us. That's what we serve. That's what we do liturgy for in our daily life. We get up and we comb our hair, we eat, we brush our teeth to serve that thing. To serve that thing. Everyone's religious. But Paul says, I'm going to proclaim to you the true God in all this stuff. I'm going to proclaim to you the true God. He proclaims there are three things about God. Notice briefly, three things about God here. He's the creator, he's sustainer, he's consummator. He's the beginning, he's the middle, he's the end, to put it in simpler terms. He's the creator, he's sustainer, he's consummator. He made the world. He's quoting here, he's, he's, he's speaking to them of the story of Genesis, which they don't even know from the Hebrew Bible, but he's telling them in a way that they can understand that this God made the world. Contrary to the Epicureans, say the world is a cyclical, eternal cycle. No, God made the world. This is not a new God. This is not a new foreign divinity. These are not strange things. He's as old as it gets. He's the only true God. He's eternal. Before the mountains came forth, Psalm number 90, Moses said, you are God. There is no other God besides him. But he made the world. He made the world. He's the Lord of the heavens and the earth. He's the reason for the existence of all things. He's not served by our hands. We don't need to have statues and idols and sacrifices to him and temples and so forth. He's not served by our hands. The psalmist even said this of the ancient temple. It was never meant to be a, a place because God needed to be fed every single day. No, it was always meant to point them to the realities of who God is and who they are. God is holy. We are sinful. We need atonement. We need a mediator. And that has come to us in the fullness of times in our Lord Jesus Christ. This God made the heavens and the earth, the sea and, and everything within them. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He owns a cattle upon a thousand hills, the Psalms say. He does not live in temples made by hands, uh, made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He does not need anything anything, including the entirety of the creation. He didn't need to create the world. He didn't need to create us as human beings. He didn't need anything. That's not why he made the world. That's not why he made us. He did so to share love and to share fellowship with us. But he didn't need us. He still doesn't need us. Why? Because he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, everything. Life, breath, everything. He's the sustainer. We read that he's also the, not just the beginning and the end, but he's also the middle. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they might seek God. You realize that not even is it that, that we confess as Christians that God made the universe. 
And it's not just that he made us as human beings, as a race and as individuals, in his image and likeness. But here the apostle says that God is the one who determines the boundary markers of groups of peoples, ethnic groups, nations, and so forth, and the times allotted to them to exist. And he's saying that to the Athenians, who once, as just Athens, were this great empire, and then eventually they were subsumed by the Greek empire, and now they're subsumed by the Romans. God knows. God has appointed all these things. God has appointed the beginning and the end of the United States of America. He knows that when we began, and he knows when we are going to end. Why? Because he's God. He's, but he sustains it all. He's in charge of it all. We call that his providence, that he's predetermined the periods, the boundaries. Why? So that we might seek him and find him. Notice the purpose of all of this, of God creating and God sustaining, is that we as human beings might seek God and have fellowship with him. We might know him, not just know him in our heads, but know him, relate to him, love him, and be loved by him. That's the purpose of it all. But in that, notice how he describes that that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him. This language is being used of a blind person, right? He does speak of our sins here because he describes us as being blind, groping about in the dark, trying to find God, but we don't. And what do we do? We end up making statues, idols, form ideas in our heads. This God who sustains all things, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. He's the source of all life. He's the one who's made us. We are his offspring. We are his image bearers, his likeness bearers, as Genesis 1, 26, 27 tells us. And as such, we shouldn't think of his being, the divine being, as being like gold, silver, or stone, images formed by art and imagination. In fact, God has appointed a time. Notice that's the, that third thing he says about God. He's the consummator. There were times of ignorance in the past, but now he commands all men to repent. There were times in which God God allowed and God overlooked, we might say, in human speech. But that time of ignorance is past. Why? Because God has entered our world in Jesus of Nazareth. He's entered our world. That ignorant time is done. He has appointed, notice, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Not just the day, but the man. To judge the living and the dead. Contrary to those philosophers that said that the world was cyclical, it had no end, it had no beginning, it had no purpose, it had no meaning. What is Paul saying? What is the purpose, what is the goal of all of existence? Children, this is a Sunday school answer. You can get it. A big three-letter word, God. God. God is the purpose of everything. God is the meaning of everything. And he's given us assurance of this. How do we know that God has appointed a day upon which to judge the world? And how do we know the one whom he's appointed to do that judging? He's assured us of these realities by raising up Jesus. By raising up Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't finish his sermon. Notice. He's just giving in to Jesus here. And they cut him off. They cut him off. Some mocked when they heard about this resurrection of the dead. Some said they would hear him again. Others mocked. Some 
believed. What do we learn from this? What do we learn from this? Again, Paul is led by the Holy Spirit in all these opportunities. His speech is filled with spirit-filled words in those opportunities to speak not just to Jews, but also Gentiles in synagogues and also uh, in the agora, in the marketplace. But this also instructs us. It instructs us this morning as a church, as a family of believers, as those who desire the salvation of the society, the culture, the neighborhoods, our families around us. What does Acts 17 say to us? First of all, what we learn here is this. That we need to learn, first of all, to listen to your neighbors. Listen to the culture around you. The terms that it uses. The things that it reads. The things that matter to it. To them, to him, to her, your, your loved one. And to ask questions. Learn to listen and be sensitive to the, to the world around you. It's easy for us as, as believers to want to, to wanna just you know, take our old, our old CDs, our old cassette tapes, our old CDs, uh, our old records, pagan stuff, right? And burn it all, you know? Burn it all. Just be done with it. You know, I'm a Christian now. I, I've left the world behind me. I don't need to worry anymore about politics and worry about science or worry about, you know, anything about that stuff anymore. And I'm just a follower of Jesus. Well, here's Rabbi Saul, who is a devotee of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's his, that was his life. Who now follows Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. And even he, probably for sure, was picking, and picking up little bits and pieces of Greek philosophy as he discussed and debated in that marketplace so that he could have discussions and conversations. He wasn't an expert in Platonic philosophy. No, he wasn't an expert in Aristotle. But he was learning just enough to be able to engage that stuff with the gospel. So we need to learn to listen to our neighbors, the culture around us. Secondly, we need to learn to talk to our neighbors on their terms. Notice, when he speaks in the synagogues, we've been seeing this up to this point, He's quoting just direct Old Testament passages and he's arguing the basis of the Old Testament that Jesus of Nazareth is this Messiah. Right? We saw that last Sunday that the Messiah had to suffer and to be raised. And he proved that from the scriptures, which we saw last Sunday was the Old Testament. And then he said, as he proved this, this outline of the Old Testament of Messiah as the, the one to suffer and to die, he said, this Jesus is that Messiah. He can't say that to these Athenians. There's a synagogue in town. They probably maybe maybe you know bumped shoulders and so forth, and maybe picked up a bit and a, a, you know a little bit here and there. They too were little seed pickers and dabblers, but he couldn't just say you know let's open up our our scroll here to Genesis one and let me exposit it to you. He couldn't do that. No, so he speaks to them in in in, in terms that they could grasp, and that's why we see even see there in your Bible these little indented quotations that he's picking up from, from these philosophical schools. In him we live and move and have our being. Well, that's what the philosophers are saying. That's what the Greeks are saying. That's what the pagans are saying. What, what does it mean? It means that God's a source of life. That there is a source of life and his name is God. We're indeed his offspring. What does that mean? Well, that's, that's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That we are made in God's image and likeness. And he, on the basis of that, he then leads them, notice. He guides them to the point of Jesus, but of course he's cut off. But we have to learn to talk to our neighbors on their terms. 
So listen, be quick to listen, slow to speak, but both. Third, we need to learn to appeal to our neighbor's sense of God, their sense of right and wrong. And I know that uh, I'm probably amongst mostly uh, politically conservative types, and I know it's easy uh, to just dismiss you know, all the, the cultural stuff around us um, you know, as just you know, wacky progressives and that kind of thing. I, I know it's easy for us to do that, for, for a lot of us probably. But in, in a lot of that, you'll find there is always a grain of truth. There is a desire for right and wrong in our society. Maybe the policies that you may not like the policy prescriptions to, to get that, or you may not like the movements that have called for justice in our society, but why are they doing that? Because they know inherently that there is such thing as right and wrong. There is such thing as justice and righteousness. Where does that come from? It comes from God. So you need to appeal to your neighbor's sense of God and the sense of right and wrong that comes to us from God. And help steer and, and direct that desire according to what the Lord says. You know, the Lord does speak about justice in society, doesn't he? Well, the Bible doesn't use the word social justice. No, it doesn't. You're right, it doesn't. But the concepts of being a just and upright, we pray for that this morning. We want a society that's upright and just. Yeah, we can be like, can be like two uh, parallel tracks, but there's something there that we need to be able to appeal to. So that speaks to us of, of what we might call common grace and this idea of, of, of being image bearers of God and, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. To listen, to talk, to appeal. But then there also, it gets to that point where also we see a little bit here where there, there has to be a moment and there has to be a way in which we can then bring, uh, bring the, the call of the gospel upon people's lives. And we see that here fourthly that we need to rely on God's greatest argument of all. What's God's greatest argument of all? In all of, on all of Paul's apologetics, whether it's the Jews or Gentiles, uh, what's the greatest reason of all that all these things are true? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? This is 1 Corinthians 15. You know, all the things that we preach, they're, they're meaningless, they're futile, we're still in our sins, we should eat, eat, drink, be married because tomorrow we die and so forth. All this stuff is meaningless unless the resurrection is true. Unless the resurrection is true. I think I told you the story before. Um, some of us, some of you have heard the story before. But my, my best friend from college, and then we went to seminary together. Um, I, I, I think Chris uh, even taught a Sunday school class for us back in the old days, back in the, in the, in the cafeteria uh, at, uh, what was that school called again? Anyways, the school we met in, it was so long ago. Uh, my, my best friend from college and seminary who went on to get a PhD in philosophy and teaches uh, philosophy uh, yeah, at college and so forth, um, who, who's now an agnostic. Who's now an agnostic. And uh, the last time I saw him face-to-face, we hung out in Kauai, and, uh, where, where he's from, and hung out uh, at a resort in the pool while the, while the kids were little. They were playing in the pool and he was giving me an earful about, you know, this philosopher and that philosopher and this is why this is wrong and this is doubtful and why, I, you know, I can't believe that anymore. I can't, you know. And I listened and, you know, tried to interact the best I could. And then, what do you think I said at the end? <laughs> I was like, Chris, like, I get you, man. Like, all this, like a, lot of, a lot of the questions you have are, are legit and a lot of the stuff's hard. But at the end of the day, the tomb's empty. Like, 
I can't answer that, and neither can you. You've got to do justice with that. Like, you've got to come to terms with that. The tomb's empty. Like, you know it's empty. You know it's empty. He rose again. Everything he said is true. It might be hard to swallow. It might be hard to fit, fit with our world. It might be hard to fit with our worldview, but it's true. It's true. We've got to learn to, 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 to base our arguments and rely, ultimately, as you see Paul does here, that the assurance of the fact that the world has a beginning, the world has an end, it all has purpose, everything has meaning, all of that is true because the tomb's empty. He's raised up the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given assurance to us of that. Rely on that. Rely on that. You don't have to have all the answers to all the questions and all the, oper- uh, and all the objections. You don't have to know everything. Right? You don't have to be uh, Brother John and have read uh, all three volumes of Petrus van Maastricht. And uh, he's got his fourth volume in the pew right there, so you can go check it out today from him, just to make sure you turn it back, turn it back in. Uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to have read everything. I mean, even our men's group, we read through Herman Boffing's big theology book. I mean, some of us, you know, we, we, picked, we picked our way through it as best we could. But we, we need to be able to rely at the end of the day on the resurrection. It's real. It's true. Finally, finally, you, we see here something of, uh, of this, the, the, the fifth little learn there. Uh, to live, that we need to learn to live uh, in a sense of God's now, if I can put it that way. A sense of God's now. He talks here about the times of ignorance, but now. But now, Right? The age in which we live is an age of God's patience, of God's allowing, and even, we might say, overlooking or putting up with the world around us. But we need to live in that now moment in which now is a time to repent. God calls everyone to turn from themselves and their own sins, their own ignorance, their own self-reliance, whatever that might be, to turn to him now. Today, as Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And God is extending his hand to the world, and he's doing so for, for as long as only he knows. For, for all we know, it could be 10,000 more years. For all we know, it could be, could be 10,000 more seconds. Today is the day of salvation. Turn away. And the Lord says that to all of us today, to, to, to come to, to the Lord and face to face with him and to get right with God through Jesus Christ by turning from our sins and embracing Christ who lived, who died, who rose again. It's all true because of him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the blessing of gathering today. We pray now that you would speak to our hearts, not just in these words, but also in the the Lord's Supper, at this table of the Lord we come to receive by faith Jesus' body and blood to assure us, to strengthen us in our faith. Help us, Lord, we pray, and help us, Lord, to be witnesses, to to be bold, to be kind, to be quick, to listen, slow to speak, to be effective. Help us to know that in all the opportunities that you lead us to every day, even this coming week, Lord, they come from you. And we praise you, Lord, uh, that you are the Lord, that you are the maker of the heavens and the earth. We can rely on you, the one who has all power, all wisdom, and all strength. And we ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, amen. Let's turn together in our hymnal as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, we're going to sing.